0: Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. everyone. Welcome back. I'm joined today by the very incredible Jen, um, who I've had the privilege of meeting through um, Gidget Foundation. She does a lot of incredible work and she has shared her story so openly and I am so honoured she's here to talk to all of us because she's just got an incredible story and such a world of insight. So thank you so much Jen. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. Of course,
1: I'm going to lose my voice. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be talking to you today.
0: So where do you maybe want to start your story?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's important to know that I'm in a same-sex relationship. Um, So I have a female partner, Liz, and... We now have two beautiful sons, Archie, who is eight, and Arlo, who is three, both very different kids. But that's the makeup of our beautiful rainbow family. Yeah, so my um, partner actually carried Archie. So I had the very unique experience of being on both sides. So watching my partner go through the IVF process, pregnancy, and then the birth and what follows the birth as well. And then I was uniquely able to have the position of going through it myself. So several years later, we decided to have a second child and I went through the IVF process didn't work the first time around and they were from embryos that I'd had frozen from five or six years earlier. So I was 37 at the time. We had no more embryos left and I decided to go through um, IUI, which is essentially the turkey-based method for those who are not sure, but in a clinic. (laughs) Um, Yeah, um, And that worked first time, which was a shock. Yeah. And we just were over the moon. But, you know, through the pregnancy, it became it was a smooth pregnancy, but it was quite a stressful period because it was during the bushfires of 2019, mm. 2020. So my anxieties were starting to increase. Um, I tend to not be a highly anxious person, but I was pretty worried, and I was monitoring the the smoke levels in the air because Sydney was blanketed in smoke every single day, mm. and I was becoming pretty worried about what that would the impact that would have on our unborn child.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I can, I can imagine. I wasn't pregnant at the time, but I remembered I would check the air quality outside just in case. And yes. I can only imagine how heightened that behaviour would have been during pregnancy.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you, you, you know, you, 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 you check what you're eating and drinking and putting in your body, um, in general to try and be healthy. Mm-hmm. And this was an external, very unplanned factor that we couldn't control, and so. Working from home wasn't a thing because it was before COVID too. So I was traveling to work in the smoke. My colleagues were asking if they could go and get my lunch so I didn't have to go outside. Um, so they, I had very thoughtful, caring people around me, but it could it didn't alleviate what we could not control. Yeah. And I think as you sort of described, I think a lot of people were anxious about the smoke. So I didn't necessarily, I was probably had a heightened anxiety, but I didn't think it was out of the ordinary because I I thought, well, I am pregnant and I do want to protect this baby. So I didn't seek help for it. I did speak to our obstetrician about the impacts on the baby and he reassured me that it actually couldn't go, go through into the baby. The smoke couldn't go through. So that alleviated my anxieties a lot.
0: And there's something else I think about your story, if you're happy to share this, both you and Liz, your beautiful partner, have backgrounds in mental health.
1: We do. So yes, um, I'm a psychologist by trade. Um, I'd never worked in the perinatal space. So it wasn't an area that I knew a lot about. But my partner, Liz, is a mental health nurse. Mm. And she's worked across various inpatient settings and had nursed a few people who had experienced postnatal psychosis so I had heard a little bit about it but I didn't know a lot to be honest and even when I started to my mental health deteriorated which I can go into that story um, I did not at all have any clue that I was what was going to happen next.
0: On that note beautiful aloes come along.
1: What's happened then? Yeah, so he was born, he decided to come along a month early. So we were not ready. We did not have any hospital bags packed. I actually worked that day and the following day was meant to be my last day of work. I'd planned about a month off beforehand um, and my waters broke that night um, before my last day of work. And, you know, we were excited still though, sup- shocked but excited, <laughs> Um so we went we rushed to the hospital and gave birth and it was a relatively smooth birthing process. I was very lucky and out came this healthy little boy. He was taken to the NICU. Mm. He did have jaundice and I was sort of left in the room by myself after giving birth, which is a strange experience, but I also knew he was in good hands. So it's very strange to be left alone after giving yeah. birth. But then, you know, my partner had to be with Arlo. So you you do what you have to do. Yeah. So not, not long after though, pretty much straight away, I started to experience mastitis, which, you know, I knew to be fairly common and something that I guess women perhaps just put up with until it gets really awful. Um, and it got really awful on about day three or four after giving birth. Um, and I represented
0: to emergency. Mm. So you'd gone home at this point?
1: Yeah, I went home. I was discharged. I think it was day four, but I actually represented that night to the ED. So I'd only been home that day. And the doctor said to me, this is a, a mild mastitis. And I remember thinking, and I might've even said to Liz, if this is mild, I, I don't know what severe is because I was in agony.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, they put me on IV antibiotics, discharged me about 36 hours later. So went home for a day or two, decided to go to Ikea to buy a breastfeeding chair. We weren't prepared. We had nothing. <laughs> um, and what I now know to be an infection took over my body. Um, and I became very paranoid in Ikea. Mm. So it was January 2020, coronavirus was being spoken about. And I didn't, uh, it wasn't in Australia yet though, but I thought in Ikea that it was over everything I thought there was coronavirus on the table we were in the food hall area I thought people walking by had it you know yeah. if somebody sneezed or coughed I thought they had it and we were going to get it I was absolutely terrified um and I was saying to Liz we've got to get out of here we've got to go we've got to go we can't be here this is a risk this is this is not good. Yeah. Um, And she listened to me, uh, obviously probably thought, what is going on? But took me home where I deteriorated and, and went to ED again. And that was because of the infection? Yeah, so because of the infection, um, we didn't know it was an infection at the time. They were still looking for sort of blocked milk ducts, which I guess is the usual cause, and they weren't finding anything and they were testing me for all kinds of things. And so they weren't sure what was causing it, but I had presented to ED in sepsis, Mm. um, which is a life-threatening illness. And at the time, this is when my mental health deteriorated rapidly. So I started becoming delirious, paranoid. Um, the The lights above my head were monitoring me. Um, mm. I thought that they thought I had coronavirus. And so I was, you know, and at the time that was a really scary thing. And yeah, I, I started to not trust the doctors, the nurses, but I was hiding all of this because I didn't want to share it.
0: And may I ask, how many days postpartum was this?
1: This second presentation was day six. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. And from my memory, we're testing my memory here. (laughs) It wasn't the doctors or the nurses who picked up on all of this. It was Liz.
1: Yeah, your memory is correct. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah. So it was Liz who, unbeknownst to me, was picking up on red flags um, Jen wasn't being herself. So I was eventually, after a lot of testing, transferred up to a, a room on the maternity ward. But I was it was sort of like an isolation room because they still didn't know what was causing the, the illness. So it's hard to remember. But I think – so to begin with, I was in the room and I didn't think I could leave the room mm. because no, I don't have any memory of anyone setting a context for me of <laughs> I did have visitors coming in. So Liz did visit me when she could, but she had a newborn at home with Archie and they were starting to introduce restrictions into hospitals due to COVID. So it was a bit complex there. Um, And I thought I was to stay in there, but I wasn't opening the blinds because I thought that was a two, like a one-way mirror type thing. And I thought, even though it was actually a window looking outside, I thought that it was fake and that people were on the other side monitoring me, and that the TV, when it was turned off, was also monitoring me. The little red dot mm. of the TV, that was that was a recording dot, and people were monitoring me. And even the clock was warping, and I think these are hallucinations. The clock was, like, walls and clock, like, it was strange. <laughs> so, obviously, I shut down a bit.
0: Mm.
1: I was in between, I guess, a mania where I... Um, had real rapid speech confusion, couldn't think straight, to also shutting down, not not talking to Liz like I normally would. So she picked up on red flags and asked for a um, review by a psychiatrist, which because we'd worked in the sector, I was lucky enough to have a psychiatrist who we both knew and I very much trusted. Um, so that was just by chance Um and if if I didn't have that individual, I probably wouldn't have trusted the psychiatrist mm. either. So that was j- just luck again, I think. At one stage, though, someone did say to me, "You know, you can leave the room. You can open the blinds." And I, it was like a my mind was blown. <laughs> um, so I stepped out into the room and I met this lovely, lovely woman who was in the room next to me, and we did have quite a lot of chats because, and I was able to to share with her what was happening to me and what they had told me I had and she you know without going into too much detail she was the perfect person I think to be there to be sharing this information with.
0: And I guess just for context here for anyone listening I'm not a medical professional so from what I understand something like mastitis or an infection at that I'm going to say severe level can cause delirium or symptoms Mm. like that but with treatment as the infection decreases the delirium goes away too but the difference being with psychosis is that it's a different thing happening. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, d- that you know, I think there was perhaps a thought that it could have been delirium. They finally figured out that it was, it was a strep B infection in my breast milk. Um, they don't know how that happened. I think it's quite rare. Um, it does live on people's skin. So when, you know, you're trying to get the baby to latch, nurses are trying to get the baby to latch and they're not necessarily wearing gloves mm. um, and you might have Cracked nipples. Let's be honest. So it could have easily, you know, I might have had it on my skin. A nurse may have, and it could have just gotten in that way. I don't know. But yeah. it's um, happened. It's happened. Yeah. They treated me with IV antibiotics for I think about two weeks, and and I had to wean. I wasn't allowed to breastfeed Arlo, um, so they weaned me very quickly and rapidly. And my mental health continued to deteriorate. So the infection improved. Well decreased I guess yeah Uh, and my mental health continued to rapidly decrease or get worse Um, and that's when they started talking postnatal psychosis because it wasn't improving as as the infection was improving Um, and maybe it was delirium and and I just let it, we let it go for too long that it became psychosis. So who Who knows? knows Who knows? But you know, the lack of sleep that you go through. So I went through several days of no sleep, mania, you know, the hormonal changes, shifts, massive hormonal changes, weaning, perhaps some genetic factors, who knows? And infection and sepsis. It was like the perfect storm, to be honest.
0: Yeah. And yeah. okay. So the psychiatrist has come in. What have they said? What's their recommendation? What's the plan?
1: Yeah, they came in, um, they did some testing. They actually did some physical testing like MRIs to figure out if I'd had, whether there was a tumor cre- causing anything. They actually tested me, neurologists came to test if I'd had a stroke. So they were testing for all kind of physical um, causes process of elimination. Hey, exactly, exactly. Um, and then they came to this point where they think it, they thought it was psychosis, and the the discussion was okay. From here, once your infection's treated, the options for you are, you know, if you start to improve, you can probably access a service like Gidget House. If your mental health isn't improving, you might need to go to a mental health ward, mm-hmm. and that. I was determined to not go to a ward, a unit. I was determined to try and remain in the community, to go home and to access support through Gidget. Unfortunately, that didn't happen.
0: I was going to say, how did you react to that advice or that diagnosis?
1: Yeah, I was scared. I was scared. Um, I had a lot of internal stigma because I knew what, I knew about psychosis generally, but I, I never ever in my wildest dreams would have thought I would experience it Um, had no risk factors that I knew of Mm -hmm. um, and had never had a pre-existing mental health condition before Mm -hmm. so um, so I was scared Um, I really I had been on the other side of a mental health ward so I I, I, you know had been to them but I had never been a patient of one Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was pretty terrified of what that might look like and in the end, they when they said to me, "You're not well enough to go home." Um, the concern was also, "Well, I'm you know I'm being separated from Arlo for longer," um, which, in hindsight, did need to happen. I wasn't in a space that I could care for him, mm-hmm. and Liz was getting in, him into a really good routine at home. So, it it in hindsight, it was best for me. Um, it would have been better if there was a. A parent baby unit at the time that I could have gone to mm. um but that wasn't the case there was no beds available in the private one at the time
0: and so the solution then was to send you to just the psychiatric ward at a hospital yes, yeah. yes.
1: so I, I went to a, a public psych ward I spent a few they actually gave me some drugs to essentially sedate me to transfer me which you know that, that's not a great experience um so we, I was spent a few nights in the assessment ward, uh, which was not a great environment to be in, and then I was transferred to the the a locked acute ward. That you know it 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 was a strange experience to be honest, because even while you're in there, there was nobody else experiencing a perinatal mental illness mm-hmm. in this ward, which meant that you can't really connect with. Uh, on the same level with the the patients that are there and and you know I did make some connections with different patients you know I remember a guy very clearly he and I he he didn't speak much at all but he and I would play ping pong together for hours <laughs> um yeah or um another guy and I would be walking pacing the corridors it's so boring in there you're not allowed out and I know pacing the corridor is not a great look you know and you need to kind of look well to get out. But I was so bored and I'm usually quite an energetic person. So he and I would pace and have chats along the
0: way. So <laughs> and I mean, it's different to somewhere like an MBU where you eventually ended up because there's no group therapy programs. There's no sessions or... Yeah, look, there was a few things. There were a few groups
1: um, and I knew that if I attended them, it would look good on my record essentially. And so I did attend them, but they weren't very helpful for me because I kind of, you know, I've got that training. I know mm. about that stuff. I needed to talk to someone about what I was going through and what, what my delusion, I needed help with managing delusions and paranoia and those groups weren't the right groups for me mm. <laughs> because they might've been a cooking group. And I was thinking, I don't- I know how to cook, and and you know it's under resourced. There's not enough resourcing for people to have that therapeutic support, yeah. wrap around with the medication that you're on, and that was where I found it challenging um, because it I didn't I knew I, when you when this is your reality when you think you're rich and famous or when you think the TV is talking to you you really think the TV is talking of to course. you. Of course,
0: it's not an intrusive thought. It's a it's
1: your reality. Absolutely, you believe it. And if someone tries to challenge you. They're in the wrong. So, um, and that's what I needed help with. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so do you remember how long you were in the um hospital?
1: Yeah, I think it was about two weeks. Wow. Um, and I think the hard thing about being in those wards is you don't know the end point. Mm. So I, re- I do remember having appointments with a psychiatrist and saying, the longer I'm in here, I feel like I'm th- the worse my mental health is going to get. I feel like I'm deteriorating because I can't have my usual daily coffee. I can't, go for a walk outside I can't even hold my baby can't hold you know he he they did come and visit there was a tiny family room that they could come and visit for an hour I think but we were stuck in that room because it wasn't a safe environment to take kids in and so that was it and then you you weren't allowed your mobile phone on you so there was a, a ward phone and if it rang, whoever was closest picked it up and said whatever to the person who's calling. And if they didn't find you or they just hung up, you missed your phone call. Like, <laughs> So it was a terribly isolating experience. I, I can only imagine. And that's,
0: you know, you can understand why parents don't present to the yep. psych
1: ward. And that's a huge challenge for the system to fix as well. Mm. Like. There are now two parent baby units in New South Wales, which is incredible. And there needs to be more so that people living in regional areas don't have to travel to Sydney. That's not okay. 100%, no. Um, and I think there are there are ways that we can do it because I did need that inpatient. You know, in hindsight, I did need that. It did help me. Mm. They got me onto the medication that I actually did need, and and that did get me to a place that I could then learn or be in a space where I could then start to care for Arlo in the, in the the mother baby unit. Mm. So while it's a difficult experience, I also recognize and it would have been better if I could have just gone to a parent baby unit and skipped that middle one. Um, My situation was definitely that I did need an inpatient stay and it did help me in the end. Um, It's a scary it's scary because you, it's the unknown yeah. um, of what might happen to you, to your baby, to your family. But for me, it helped, yeah, in the end, in the of end. Of
0: course, and that's the luxury of hindsight.
1: <laughs> yes, it is, it is. And being able to reflect on, you know, Liz and I have talked over and over and over again about that first year in particular and and reflected on our different experiences as carer so I've now you know I hadn't really even thought about her experience of what it was like but she when I went into the parent baby unit the baby was given to me and all of a sudden this bond that she'd created and the routine she'd created at home with Arlo you know now the baby's taken from her and given to me and so that was a loss for Liz that I'd never considered Mm. um, that now we are able to talk about quite openly together yeah
0: of course and if i may Mm. there were two things that you and liz spoke to me about um one of them was you managed to get a hold of a phone this is before we get to the mbu um you managed to get a hold of a phone and you were calling liz nonstop. and i was hoping you could share a bit about that
1: yeah so look and i i don't know how i got a hold of my phone (laughs) This was in the, the the three days, two or three days that I spent in the the assessment unit. And I, I don't know how I had my phone. I have no memory of that. Um, but apparently, I had my phone. And I was calling Liz nonstop because I was convinced that I was going to break out of there and that, that I was rich and famous and that that people were coming to break me out of there and that there'd be a pack of media and that, they'd, you know, I don't know what... I, I, I don't know where this kind of delusions come from. And it was distressing for Liz though. So my constant call, and I've got very little memory of that, those few days in there. So this was her telling me the story. Um, She had to contact the ward and say, can you take her phone off her? Because, you know, it was obviously maybe a mania that, that I was experiencing and I, you know, my memory is quite shot of the period, but it was really distressing for Liz to experience that and, and to have to say, can you please take a phone off her? Because it's yeah. a freedom that you don't want to have to have taken away. Yeah, yeah.
0: and the story that I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, you got in trouble, I think. I did.
1: Yeah, so I'll explain the story. So I'm in the locked psych ward and Liz had said to me, can you just do something, you know, that you would usually do at home? Why don't you do, go do the laundry? So I thought, okay, there's a laundry room here. <laughs> yep, I'll do my laundry. <laughs> so I grabbed my dirty clothes, walked to the laundry, and the laundry door was locked. But there was a door, it was sort of in this small hallway, and there was a door next to it that was ajar. And I thought, oh, there must be a laundry through here. So I walked in, and I remember there were arrows pointing. So I thought, oh, I better follow these arrows. Followed the arrows that took me to the lift. So, pressed the lift button. And this was not outside of the ward. This was internally. So, pressed the lift button. I think I just pressed a random button going up. I don't know why I pressed that one. Um, went up, lift doors open. And all of a sudden, I am on another psych ward. And it turns out I was on the drug and alcohol ward. I didn't know that that's where I'd ended up. I was looking for the laundry. Um, and a nurse came up to me and said, who are you? <laughs> And was quite shocked and I said well who are you <laughs> like because <laughs> I, I thought well that's a bit rude like uh, <laughs> and she said well you who are you well, this is the drug and alcohol what I don't you know I don't know who you are and I was like well I'm I'm Jen like I'm looking for the laundry <laughs> Like, and uh, she said well who's your nurse and I said I don't know who my nurse is like I <laughs> You know, you, To know who your nurse is, you have to look at this whiteboard and mm. who they've allocated and I didn't do that every day so I <laughs> didn't know who my nurse was. Um, but I did remember where, which ward I was on and she escorted me down and not long after, Liz actually got a, a job in, in this sort of facility and she learnt that I was the first person to ever have escaped yeah. the locked ward mm-hmm. even though I wasn't meaning to escape.
0: But you were meant looking for the
1: lock. I was looking for the laundry <laughs> but that meant that I was then you know, being you know my my rights. This is where the the, the system doesn't necessarily work that well because mm. you have to earn the right to have an hour leave to go and get a coffee or to go to the shop to get a coke or mm. to go for a walk. And you, you know, you do something like that, and you're almost punished. So mm. you have to, you know, you have to a bit play the game in there. I don't know if I should be saying that. <laughs>
0: Well, you're classified as a flight risk. As a flight risk. In mind, it's, oh, let's protect you, let's protect the other patients.
1: That's probably better, (laughs) yes.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, maybe if someone had had a conversation with you.
1: And that's it. Like, And I didn't understand why every room was locked. I'm like, Mm. well, why is the laundry locked? Like, you know, and why is the music room locked? And why is the gym locked? And why do I have to ask to access all these things? Mm -hmm. So I I now get involved in uh, advocacy work to speak up about models of care and, and how they do things within mental health um, units, because I think it's important that, you know, they are, they are needed, and people do need to be there sometimes, but that it, it can be a space that is more like your home, you know, when you, I understand you have to do risk assessments, but you can also, you know, make sure that that it is more like a homely environment for people and people can access these fairly standard things that you need to do.
0: <laughs> like even have a coffee.
1: Yeah. You yeah.
0: know, I think that the humanity part, and we ended up in the same MBU a year apart from it. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think when you go to somewhere like the MBU and that humanity isn't taken away, yeah, it, my heart goes out because you know, how important it is to have just that dec- human decency, I think.
1: Yeah. And I often speak about the two nurses on that ward that made the biggest difference to me were the two nurses who took me to get a coffee. I go yeah. back to that. But they made the time, even though I know they were so time poor, mm. to talk to me like I was a normal human being mm-hmm. and to take and get me a coffee. And they had the hugest impact on me. And that wasn't easy for them because they have many patients to look after and so that's what made a difference to me and as you say when you go to a parent baby unit um, the the morning walk was important for me to attend and some of the groups you know I didn't necessarily you know feel I could connect as well with people because I had that different experience But I still did connect with people on another level. So having Mm. people around who had newborns who were also trying to build a connection with their newborn through um, whatever it was that they're going through really made a huge difference. Yeah. And having nurses who understand mental health and babies, Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: critical, critical. Yeah, And, I mean, I can't speak for your experience, but I know for mine, they didn't look at me like I was crazy. Not once not once did anyone make me feel like I was sick or that I would get in trouble like nothing like that
1: no not at all and and people were so super accepting you know and I know as a same-sex couple it's often hard to present to health services um, because you're scared of discrimination and prejudice and the way that you'll be treated but I have to say throughout my experience, I never had a bad experience and people didn't treat us differently. Sometimes I think language could be improved. I'm going to say that because people assume you have a husband. Um, <laughs> but that's probably often the case because I, I imagine in straight couples, not everyone's married and not everyone has a husband. So I think th- there's work to do. But as a as a same-sex rainbow family, we were always treated really well. And I have a lot of time and space and encouragement for people to present and, and you know ask for help when they need it
0: on that note going to the mbu did you know that was coming how was that
1: um uh, i knew it was coming we'd been waiting for a bed uh, i was probably too unwell to begin with to go there and then we were waiting for a bed so when the bed opened up and i was liz was able to actually drive me there i was still quite nervous about going because again i didn't know what to expect and this is Probably something that might be quite unique to rainbow families is that often private health facilities are run by religious or faith-based organisations,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so I was quite anxious about that.
0: For context, this was the only MBU in yes. New South Wales. It was private, and as you said, it was Catholic. Or religious. It, yes. Yeah. So
1: I was very anxious about that. That being said, it was such an accepting environment, and so. My anxieties were relieved as soon as I stepped in the door and met the nurses and realised that, look, you know, that's the background of the organisation, but these people who are here, they're they're here to help us. Um, So, yeah, so I was pretty anxious. I didn't want to go. I wanted to go home, to be honest. I was over being in hospitals. Mm. um, But they essentially said, well, we're not from my memory. It's, well, if you don't go here, then you're staying here. Mm. (laughs) Um, So I took... That option and ended up not doing the full three week program because I was feeling really homesick by this point in time and just wanted to get home. But I did stay for about two of the three weeks.
0: We just fast-tracked the program. Of course. And I mean, in all fairness, a lot of the the group sessions are heavy on anxiety or, you know, those kind of skills. And with psychosis, yeah, it's harder to engage, I think, with the skill-based therapy.
1: Yeah. So I ended up sort of speaking up and negotiating a bit of a deal because I, I also having a psych background... You know, I knew about circles of security, you know, I knew about all that stuff. So I wasn't, I didn't feel that that was as beneficial as it could have been for me. So I actually negotiated and, and had more individual one-on-one sessions and could speak to and if I could sort of say, look, I, I, I want to attend these ones, but I don't think these ones, you know are going to be as beneficial and I'm going to go on the daily walk. And I went to the exercise physiologist. I did go to the arts room. So as long as I was participating, it was really useful in that sense that I was able to build a program that I thought was going to be more useful for me. Yeah, they were Yeah, they were accommodating of that.
0: I guess the rest of your experience in the MBU, aside from wanting to go home <laughs> the whole time, um, was Liz able to come and stay?
1: Uh, Yeah. So she, she was able to, but she didn't because we also had our eldest son. Yeah. So it would have been great if she could have, but with Archie, we wanted to make sure he had, you know, one of us, obviously Liz around. I think he's thinking of what that was all about was that you have a baby and you just have to spend a whole heap of time in hospital. They did, she did try and bring him along and they visited a lot, but I did, you know, a lot of it by myself. Yeah, overnight it was myself and Arlo and and the nurses.
0: And what was it like reconnecting with Arlo, if I may?
1: Yeah, so I think to begin with the MBU, the, the parent baby unit really helped with that bond, helped me build a bit of routine, Seeing Archie and Arlo together, that really, that, you know, he, he's such a great big brother and he's, he was so nurturing with him. He would lie on the ground next to him um, singing like nursery rhymes to him as a newborn. It was just adorable and I loved watching those moments and capturing things on little videos so I could watch it back. So, you know, when he started laughing um, and I would watch that video over and over or when he started to walk and I would watch that over and over just to try and build memories and I was conscious that other people were very very concerned about my bonding with him sure. to the point where it felt actually almost pressure yeah. <laughs> and almost like I had to prove that I bond with him but that being said I I think over time you know my bond with him has not been impacted I'm as close to him and have such a, a strong bond with him as I do with our eldest son. And I think it's heaps of factors that helped that, to be honest.
0: Yeah. yeah. And what was it like going home when you've been an impatient for? several weeks
1: yeah so we obviously did discharge planning at the parent baby unit but another challenge that we were then going into was being discharged essentially into lockdown the first lockdown and that was the unknown for everyone and so I remember distinctly the nurses in my discharge planning saying have you got toilet paper and I was thinking what are you (laughs) like what Right. I know I've been where I've been, but what are you talking about? So there's, you know, there's humour to every story, I think, but yeah, so it was a, that was another really extremely challenging, I would say six months to to 12 Mm. months. Liz had to go back to work because she'd taken all of her leave, sick leave, annual leave, everything to care for the kids. Um, She didn't qualify for parental leave because she's a female partner and, you know, she yeah. got I think one week partner leave or something so she had to go back to work so I had both kids at home but luckily Archie had started preschool and we spoke to the preschool and they were more than willing to have him attend school during lockdown knowing that Liz was a healthcare worker mm. and that I had been through what I'd been through so we were able to send him a couple of days a week and then I had both boys at home by myself I am grateful for the community on our little street because that was when we got to know one another during lockdown. I think it's a pretty common story, people getting to know their neighbours better. And we would, you know, I was on antipsychotics for about six months and I was being treated by the community team. And I was also being able to, you know, connect in with community that way but you know during lockdown my parents couldn't our family couldn't visit us so that nobody met Arlo for I don't know how long it was (laughs) here other than the street people we we had the five kilometer radius so friends family cousins we had no parent mother's groups didn't happen so I was planning on going to baby bounce and jiggle and wiggle they all stopped so all of a sudden you're isolated again as a as a parent of a newborn so a lot of you probably were similar what the heck is going on thoughts (laughs) so I did what everybody else did and went for daily walks and yeah tried to keep busy as best I could with the kids in our small little environment
0: (laughs) of course from what I know of psychosis and this might not have been your experience but I hear that after postpartum psychosis it can be common to then experience depression Mm. was that something that you had to deal with and confront as well
1: I think I did. Um, I, I never was sort of formally diagnosed. And I think I also, I, I so badly wanted to get off the antipsychotics because they had, you know, not great side effects. Um, you loo- And I don't know if it was a, mm. a function of the, the drugs I was on where you lose your affect, your emotion. You just feel flat when you're on those drugs and you've sort of re it's a rebound from being manic Mm. so yeah perhaps i would say i probably did i felt very flat lost disconnected and i i was telling the treating team all the things i was trying to do Mm. um, rather than the flatness that i felt because i did want to get off the the medication um the the antipsychotics yeah yeah um but I, i i wasn't myself mm. I, I reckon probably 18 months or two years I wasn't my mm-hmm. full self um it really did take a long time to get back to feeling myself again yeah and
0: if I may what helped you feeling back to yourself again
1: so what helped was I think the medication helped to alleviate or to reduce the delusions the paranoia probably first and then the delusions mm. And that got me to a space where I could start to think through what some of the psychologists and psychiatrists had said to me. So one of the things they'd said to me was, you need to start challenging these thoughts. When you think the TV is speaking to you, or when you think that magazine has been written for you, or when you think whatever the delusion is, you need to try and think of all the other uh, possibilities and and challenge that thought. And I, I really that on board and tried to tried to do that to think of all the other possibilities of why they it wasn't actually speaking to me uh, and I think that probably helped over time mm-hmm. um, I start I did start writing Lizard said to me can mm-hmm. you I think she said this to me when I was actually in the first hospital can you please write down what's going on for you and I've got those books now and some days it's like gobbledygook
0: mm-hmm.
1: like you actually can't and then other days it, there's ranting and then other days there's sort of you know really wise questions that I wanted to ask a psychiatrist um yeah. so it, it's really interesting reading back through those but I think getting it out helped and yeah. I eventually shared that with with Liz or some parts of it Yeah, and connecting in with people as best I could during lockdown. So when I did get home, you know, close friend, close trusted friends who knew what I'd been through, trying to bring some kind of normality back to my life, what that looked like, Um, Mm. even if it was them dropping by and delivering us a coffee. You know, I think everyone started justifying short visits by friends because you had to for your mental health.
0: And as a psychologist going through all of this... What was that like in terms of the way you saw yourself? You know, I guess I can only imagine that that would challenge a bit of your identity.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I didn't know a lot about postnatal psychosis, but I knew about psychosis. I guess I felt almost ignorant because I thought I knew about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when you then experience it, you realize you have a lot more empathy for people that live with... With psychosis or people who live with schizophrenia, I I now think I feel like I have a lot more empathy and I can relate to those people in such a different way, which I think has enriched my life and changed my life in a way. Um, You know, and I do know now that I'm at risk of another episode, particularly perimenopausally, Mm -hmm. and that scares me. So, you know, Liz and I are very mindful of what red flags might look like, and probably it's probably harder f- for Liz even because she feels that pressure. You know, and mm. of having you know, I'm not going to be the one that picks up on no. it. It's yeah, because it'd be my reality. It it would be somebody else picking up mm. on it. So yeah, I think despite my training, you know, you you think you think that you might have been able to pick up on it. But I now know that when you're in a psychotic sort of state or experiencing mm-hmm. an episode, that is your reality. No matter how bizarre your thoughts are, mm. that is your reality. And if somebody thinks that, you know, often they can be quite scary, mm. um, they might be or religious-based or um, almost demonic. If somebody, mm. that is their reality. And I can't imagine how terrifying that would be yeah. for them.
0: Another question, if I may, do you have self-compassion for having gone through what you went through?
1: Um, I think I do now. Mm. Um, I almost see it, I try and view it now as a strength and as an, like it was definitely an experience that has helped me grow as a person and helped me have more empathy. Um, To begin with, there was a lot more internal stigma and disbelief sort of yeah, just, I didn't like the idea that this is what I was experiencing. I really didn't want to be, didn't like it, didn't believe people, didn't. (laughs) Um, But over time, and I find the more I talk about it, the more it helps me to grow as a person, but it helps others to understand it. And I hope it helps health professionals to understand what psychosis is and, and what helps people through that
0: and on that note, what do you wish people knew about psychosis in general or postpartum psychosis specifically? Because there is a lot of misconceptions, misinformation. I guess, what do you wish people actually knew?
1: I, I wish I wish it was spoken about more, particularly in antenatal classes and, and through GPs. I wish people, I wish the health system screened for risk factors like they do with anxiety and depression mm-hmm. so that we can at least you know, just have an idea. We know that if someone has a diagnosis of bipolar, that they're at risk of postnatal psychosis. Um, We know if someone has a family history of, you know, their mother or their grandmother has experienced it, then they're going to be more at risk. Mm -hmm. So I wish we spoke about it more as families. I wish health professionals screened for it and also spoke to people about it. Um, so that there was a general better health literacy because, uh, you know, they say it's rare, but one to two in a thousand births, that's actually not that rare. No. I think there's a hundred thousand births in New South Wales alone a year. Yeah. So one to two, that's, I think, a hundred, if my maths are correct, a year, a hundred women experiencing postnatal psychosis.
0: Yeah, obviously, I'm sitting here very grateful that your loved one is a mental health nurse. and <laughs> so picked my, oh so ble- my. <laughs>
1: up on the flags look there's a few points in my story that I consider myself to be extremely lucky and that is um one of them Mm -hmm. is that I chose a person who is you know obviously an awesome person of course and happens to have the expertise that I needed
0: and I think what you've said as well about improving our collective mental health literacy as a society because the individual going through um psychosis or an episode they don't pick up on that And they won't. It's the loved ones who have to pick up on it. And if we don't know about it as a society, if your loved one had no idea that postpartum psychosis even exists, what signs are they looking out for? What are the red flags? And often, you
1: know, it's the strange behaviors. It's the out of character behavior of their partner, which I think people often throw aside of, well, they've just had a new baby and they're not getting a lot of sleep. Mm. But I think you know, if we're attuned to that more, it's not that we want to be alarmist about it, because I don't want to be alarmist about it. But if, you know, if somebody is really out of character, that early intervention can huge. make a huge difference. And that's where, you know, in within the system, if, if we were screening for it, as we did with anxiety and depression, we were picking up the, the women, you know, I would have been Probably missed anyway, but if we were picking up women who we know were higher risk based on X, Y, and Z factors, those conversations could be had with that that person and their partner. uh, You know, while they're going through the pregnancy, so the partner knows this is what to look out for just in case. I don't. You don't want to raise anxieties and 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 create worry when it doesn't need to be there. At the same time. It's not as rare as people think it is and it can have catastrophic impacts yeah. um, if it's not treated. And so I think sometimes when we consider risk, we have, to, we have to weigh up and think through carefully how we can support people to be health literate in a, in a meaningful and, mm-hmm. a, um, and a measured way about something like postnatal psychosis and how we, particularly partners, they're the people and or partners or family extended family they're the people that are going to know pick it up on it so they're the people that need to know that this is quite a serious Mm. it's considered an emergency so we need to be talking about it more
0: and that's the thing you know as you said a small proportion but big impact yeah and and people
1: are not necessarily I think one of the myths is that people experiencing psychosis are dangerous to themselves or to others mm. um, and I think I'm not saying that that doesn't that doesn't occur but I think the the experience of that individual is such that they you know if something does happen it's out of protection and it's out of mm. um, trying to provide safety and create safety um, out of what they what is their reality yeah um, that's my only kind of understanding of of that and i think that there is an assumption that that people who are experiencing psychosis are dangerous and at not one point in time did i become dangerous towards anybody you know there is often a stigma about people with mental illness particularly psychosis that they're going to be violent or dangerous and not once was i aggressive mm. violent you know it's a myth that needs to be broken
0: and i think along those lines when we do hear about postpartum psychosis as a society, it is in that sensationalist context. And I wonder how you feel when
1: it's, it's news, it's clickbait. Exactly. And I think when I see those stories, my heart goes out to the whole family. Mm. I could not imagine what that would be like for everyone involved in those instances. And, you know, the often the mother is demonized um, criminalized criminalized demonized and there is a long way to go in the media to be more empathic but also to be more ethical and moral about how they report on these stories because it doesn't help the family no you know the family has gone through enough they need support around them and and probably privacy. I I don't know, but I just think the family, the mother and the family need to be prioritized in those instances and support because it's, it's just tragic. Yeah,
0: And I remember like some of my friends who had gone through postpartum psychosis, it wasn't even the event itself that was sensationalized, that was upsetting. It was, you know, all the comments on posts or people's interpretation or people's opinions, people's judgments. Judgments, assumptions,
1: misunderstandings, uh, misinformation, and it it, it's so harmful mm. to the family that's going through it. But as you've alluded to, people who have experienced psychosis and their families and their loved ones too, because it does bring it all back for you and it does reinforce the stigma that you've already felt. Mm. So that is a learning, I think, for individuals out there. Um, because the more you comment, the more it's shared and the more the stigma is created and prejudice.
0: Definitely. And it shows so clearly how as a society, we still don't know how to tackle the topic of mental ill health. It shows how much stigma still exists.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I have to say, when I do start scrolling those comments, I very quickly switch off. Mm-hmm. Um, because it doesn't help me at all um, and that's been something that I've learned over time and just reflect on you know for me I reflect on what that family must be going through mm-hmm. and I'm going to start crying now so <laughs> yeah it's that empathy towards other people that that go through something similar thank you
0: um, just maybe before I was there anything else you wanted to I should have I should have asked that no. was there anything I missed no I think you got <laughs> everything <laughs> I was like I need to talk about the laundry story I, know. <laughs> I don't know why but that really stuck with me from September last year
1: you know and there's uh, there's one other story that I was then involved in the co-design of the, the RPA unit and oh were you Oh, uh, well, very briefly, because I sort of came in partway, like halfway through. There was, uh, you know, and it shows the importance of co-design when you're looking at facilities as well, because there was a point in time when they were looking at the flooring, the, the, the interior design, and they were looking at flooring and they presented to a group of us um, parquetry flooring, which uh, it's sort of goes like triangles like that and then triangles like that. And I could kind of switch back into my psychosis head, and my immediate thought was, they're going to be arrows. That's going to tell me where to walk.
0: Mm. And
1: I'm going to be walking like that and then walking like this and following the arrows. And I don't want to make a joke about it, but that I was able to say that. Mm. And the executive head of the district mm. was there and she immediately said, we can't have that flooring. Mm. Just go with standard like, you know whatever laminate timber flooring whatever they I can't remember now and all carpet Um, we just can't have that I know it's trendy I know it looks good (laughs) and they took that information on board and I think that's where the power of lived experience in in designing the physical spaces of units or even um, psychologists rooms clinicians you know anything as well as models of care and stuff it's it's important.
0: It's critical to have that consumer perspective, that lived perspective. Yeah.
1: So that was like a really concrete example of how I think, yeah, you could inadvertently, it had cost them a lot of money to fix that, but inadvertently, and they might not figure it out for a long time. People might be, you know, walking the corridors for a while following those arrows and and nobody would have known why. So that, yeah, it was just a... (laughs) another a good example I think.
0: A great example and good on you for getting involved in that I can only imagine how meaningful that would have felt to come in and make a difference like that.
1: Yeah it, it was um, that's you know with the background I have I think that's kind of where I'm able to to help out anyway so.
0: Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today I know it's a it's a heavy topic but I am so grateful that you're always open to talking about it because again we don't talk about we don't talk about it enough we don't talk about going into a psychiatric ward and getting in trouble because we were trying to do laundry or two mental health nurses who got you a coffee you know those are the things we need to talk about and I'm so grateful to you for your advocacy in this area so truly from the bottom of my heart thank you for coming on and talking to us today
1: yeah no worries and and thank you for all the work you do with your podcast because you know this is how information gets out there this is how it can be shared it's so critical you you talking to everybody is um it's it's very inspiring to be honest (laughs) so thank you for all that you do in this space and I know that it's just you know what you do is critically important to to getting the word out so thank you
0: Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast, and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.